0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. We continue our studies in 1 Peter this morning, chapter 4, looking at verses 12 through 19. Page 1016 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We give thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation. And Lord, as we study this portion of your word this morning, we pray for the light of your spirit, the leading of your spirit to an understanding of these words that will equip us to live for you, to bring glory to you this week. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter addresses other things in his letter besides the whole theme of suffering uh, of opposition, and yet he keeps coming back to that thing. As we've seen before, uh, he's spoken of this earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and now here again in chapter 4, and he'll refer to it some more in chapter 5. Now, for some of us, most of us, maybe all of us, all of this talk of opposition, of persecution, uh, has a bit of an air of unreality to it. In some ways, that's a blessing. In other ways, it's not, because the reality for most Christians throughout most of church history, including much of the world today, is that to be a believer in Christ, to be a a follower of Christ, entails a cost. And some of you perhaps have experienced that pushback from the world to some degree. I don't know that any of us have experienced what Peter would describe as a fiery trial, Uh, but there certainly have been brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, literally have uh, experienced a fiery trial and being burned, uh, that sort of thing, uh, or fiery in a more metaphorical sense. Uh, However, in our case, in our nation, that may increasingly uh, be the case. For us. Uh, not so much because we're Christians, but because we claim Christ is the only way. A position, as we've seen, that was as offensive in Peter's day uh, in the Roman Empire as it is in our own. You can be a Christian as long as you acknowledge everybody else's way is good too. When you say, with Christ, He is the, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Him. Well, that's when the, the, the hair flies and the hackles rise and uh, you know, you, you've offended, you've dared to uh, stand. And so that's what Peter's describing here. People who, to one degree or another, were suffering from the world because they were Christians. And because Christ was not a savior, he was the Savior, and so here in this passage, he gives us several more lessons having to do with handling opposition, handling the uh, the the, uh, the hatred even of the world toward who we are and whose we are as Christians. So, want we'll to look at several lessons here that he mentions. First of all, in terms of opposition or persecution from the world, we should expect it. We should expect it. Look at verse 12. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised. Don't peek caught off guard. Don't let the fact that there are people who oppose you because they oppose what you stand for. Because they oppose the one whom you stand for. Don't let that catch you off guard. Don't, don't scratch your head and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a nice person. What have I ever done to hurt anybody? Why would they react that way toward me? Don't, don't let that catch you by surprise. Now, normally that would be a surprise in a perfect world, in a, in an unfallen world, which in the scriptures lasts us all the way up until the first few verses of Genesis 3. Uh, then yes, it would be unusual. But we don't live in a perfect, unfallen world. We live in a very imperfect, fallen world, a world in rebellion against God, a world that, uh, as as Paul says, has a mind that is enmity toward God, just by nature hostile toward God. They murdered Christ. Don't be surprised when they don't like seeing Christ in you. Uh, That's normal for this world. We should not be surprised, and especially we who perhaps don't experience this as a day in and day out kind of thing. When it does come, we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be caught off guard. And notice what what, uh, Peter says about it here. Don't be surprised at it. One, because of the nature of the world, and two, because of God's concerns for you. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We should expect it, one, because of the nature of the world we live in. It is fallen. It is, by nature, in opposition to Christ. It wants to be its own God. It wants to go its own way. The convenient thing about the idols of the world is that people basically can control them. The idol is a symbol, basically, for their own desires to be God. They can control the idol and make it what they want. Isaiah does a great job of mocking the whole uh, whole process of idolatry. You know, a man cuts down a tree. Part of it he uses for firewood. The other part he carves into a god and worships it. But it's a very controllable god. He made it. He made the god in his own image. And that's true whether it's actually a piece of wood or a construct in the mind. But you see, with the living god, he doesn't give us that option. He says, you are to be conformed to me. You are to be like me. And you will be accountable if you're not. But that's just part of it. We shouldn't be surprised also because God does bring trials into our lives and afflictions of various kind, including persecution, to test, to evaluate, to determine the reality just as gold is tested or gold can be refined. So the Lord brings these things into our life, allows these things to come into our lives in order to test. There's nothing quite like a fiery trial, to use Peter's terms, To sift out the chaff from the wheat. Who really belongs to the Lord? Well, no one's going to suffer much inconvenience or pain for a Jesus they don't truly believe in and follow and love. To test the genuineness of your faith. To test the maturity. And that your faith may be real, but how mature are you in it? How strong are you in it? You see, these kinds of things, uh, these trials, fiery trials, or even... Not quite so grim as that. Uh, have a way of exposing and testing and evaluating. And so we can expect it because of the nature of the world. We can expect it because God's purpose is for us to try us, to test us, to expose our weakness, to show us our own, uh, our own immaturity, and to help us to grow by them. So Peter says, you know, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Don't let it catch you off guard. So that's the first lesson that Peter has to say to them and to us. The second lesson that he has to say here is that we should rejoice in it. That seems sort of strange. Uh, And yet that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 13. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. But by contrast, rejoice. Now, not rejoicing because of it. But notice what he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. It's the first reason we rejoice in it. We identify with Christ. We're not above our master. You know, it would be nice if we could say, well, we have a suffering Savior. We have a Savior who went to the cross, but he considers us above that. We're better than that. Uh, I shouldn't have to suffer at all. Even though I have a Savior who came for me and suffered completely, suffered untold agonies, but why should I have to suffer? You see, when we suffer for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, we are identifying with Christ and being identified with Christ in his suffering. That's something we rejoice over, dear friends, not to lament. We don't rejoice because we like pain. We rejoice because we are suffering similarly to our Savior for the sake of our Savior, like the apostles when they in early in Acts when they were arrested and they were beaten and sent out and told to preach the name of Jesus no more, and they go out rejoicing that they had been count worthy to suffer for the name. That was an honor. It was a privilege. And getting back to verse 13, that that too is, is, is part of passing that test, that you are identifying with Christ in his sufferings. It doesn't add to your salvation, nothing like that. But it does mean that if you call yourself a Christian, that you are identifying with Jesus and you share with him in his rejection by the world. You too are rejected by the world. That in itself is something to rejoice over. Because this Scripture says, you can't be a friend both of the world and of God. And so you can rejoice when the world opposes you because you are identifying with Christ and his sufferings. But along the same, there's the flip side of the coin. Did you notice what he goes on to say in verse 13? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, you're identifying in the pattern of Jesus' life, which first involves suffering. Here in this world, his humiliation, his rejection, ultimately his crucifixion. But then his glory, the resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his reign, he's exalted to the highest place. He's given the name that's above every name. You see, we identify with him in his sufferings that we might also share in his glory. And dear friends, there's no shortcut to the glory. You can't take a buy on the suffering part of it say, so, well, let's just move on to the glory. You identify with Christ. You suffer with him, but you will also share his glory with him. If you're identified with Christ, it can't happen any other way. That was the pattern of his life. That's the pattern of the believer's life as well. And that suffering can involve more than just persecution. It can involve other kinds of suffering as well in this fallen world. But certainly it involves that. And most directly as a follower of Christ, it involves that. You know, non-believers get cancer. But suffering for Christ's sake is specifically something that happens to the Christian. So we can rejoice in that we're identifying with Christ. You know, certainly in his suffering, yes, but with the anticipation of sharing in his in his glory. But also rejoicing in another thing. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Kind of an echo of um, you know, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Were persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, you are blessed because why? The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not only are you identifying with Christ, but that is, is evidence of His Holy Spirit being at work in your life. That you are one. That you you speak of Christ. That you your life reflects the character of Christ is all work of the Holy Spirit in you. And so if you are suffering for the sake of Christ, it is because of his Holy Spirit at work, making you like Christ, but also giving you grace to stand, to stand out, giving you grace to live as a Christian, whether that means doing some things that others may not do and may dislike or even belittle you for, uh, like going to church, for instance, or... That you don't do things that others do. Remember earlier in chapter 4, uh, Peter says, you know, he talks about the Gentiles, the unbelievers, even though some of his readers were Christians, Gentiles, the Gentiles in the sense of unbelievers. He says they live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in this same flood of debauchery. Uh, and sometimes you sort of act like a conscience, you know, the conscience makes you uncomfortable when you've done something wrong. Well, but the, the very fact that the Christian will not join in with them can can act like a conscience and they don't like that. They fight back against that. And so that's what what he is saying here. When this happens, you're blessed because that's evidence of the spirit of glory. The spirit of God rests upon you. It's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. One, that your character is Christ-like in that way. And two, that you are strong enough to stand against pressure to do something or not to do something that the world would uh, want to influence you in. Speaking of rejoicing, there's another thing here. talking about rejoicing in it in verses 15 and 16 that he mentions. Uh, We can rejoice because we are identifying with Christ and his suffering, but also one day in his glory. We can rejoice because it's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ that work in us. And the third thing he mentions, the reason we can rejoice is we bring glory to God. Look at verses 15 through 16. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You know, we've already seen that uh, back in chapter 3 and 4. Uh, earlier in chapter 3, he, he speaks of... You're not suffering uh, for for doing wrong. Uh, Chapter 2, verse uh, 20, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Well, kind of the same theme here. You don't want to suffer because of your own waywardness. If you're a murderer, don't complain if you're suffering the consequences, or a thief, or an evildoer, or even a meddler. Some translations read a busybody. Um, Kind of going down the scale here, murder... Thief, an evildoer, a meddler. strange word. It's the only time that word meddler, uh, the the word Peter uses, occurs in the Bible. In fact, in Greek literature, you you almost wonder if you made it up. It's sort of a compound word, and it has to do with somebody who looks into the business of another. Uh, and Who looks into that which belongs to another. And some have suggested it could have to do with evil practices or such, but the most commonly understood uh, meaning of the term is that of a busybody an evil uh, or a meddler, someone who's involved with other pe- people's business, you know, just can't mind his own business. Well, I hope not too many people uh, that Peter was writing to were murderers or thieves or evildoers, um, but were some of them meddlers, you know, were some of them busybodies, whether in one another's business or in unbelievers' business, and irritating them and bringing uh, bringing uh, dishonor to themselves, not for the sake of Christ, but because they just can't leave people alone, because they can't just mind their own business sometimes. Then, as Christians, we need to learn a lesson from that. Uh, there, there's a right way and a wrong way to interact with unbelievers to win a hearing for the gospel, and being a meddler in their business, you know isn't the way to do it. And so Peter's talking about that. Well, Don't don't suffer for these flaws that are in you. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We can rejoice in it because that's an opportunity to glorify God. Uh, Just like Peter, John did, you know, to give thanks, they were counted worthy to suffer for the name but not because of our own foolishness. And so these are some reasons to rejoice. Is it painful? Yes. Is it fun? No. We wish we could move beyond it? Absolutely. However, some things to rejoice about in it, identifying with Christ, it's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It's an opportunity to glorify God, to praise Him, that people see enough of Christ in you to reject you, not to like you, Because they reject him, and they don't like him either. So the two lessons so far: one, that we should expect it; we shouldn't think it's some strange thing that the world rejects us for Christ's sake. Two, we can rejoice in it for the reasons that Peter mentions. There's a third lesson that he has here for us uh, in terms of this, and it's a pretty dire one. And that is to consider the alternative. Consider the alternative. Notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's a little bit of a difficult statement. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Wait a minute, didn't Jesus pay for our sins? Hasn't Judgment Day for the Christian essentially coming on gone in terms of our eternal destiny? Yes, it has. But what Peter is drawing on here is teaching from the Old Testament that we do see carry into the New. That in terms of sifting, in terms of discipline, in terms of chastening, in terms often of affliction in this world... It starts with the people of God. Let me give you just one example. There's a couple of passages. We won't look at all all of them, but uh, look at one of them. And that's uh, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Now the reference, if you're taking notes, you want to write it down, is Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 6. But you see this throughout the Old Testament, that, that, that chastening, that dealing with sin begins with the people of God. Because God is concerned about the character of His people. Now you move into the New Testament. You think of passages like uh, Hebrews twelve, where it says, "Those whom God, you know, who, who belong to God, He disciplines as sons. What son is there who is not disciplined? You know, any any good parent disciplines his children. Well, God disciplines His own children, which is not an expression of His displeasure, but of His love." That he loves you too much to allow sin to go on in your life. He loves you too much to allow you to just go your own way. And so, yes, as a child of God, you experience his chastening, his discipline, his humbling, his correction. He's chiseling you into the image of Christ, and sometimes those chisel blows can be painful. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, as Christians, uh, Paul indicates when he writes to the church in Corinth that, that we will be evaluated. We will go through the judgment day. It's not that we escape, but it's that our, our righteousness on judgment day is that of Christ's. Nevertheless, as God's people, he's at work to make us like Christ. And that's what Peter's saying here. Look, you know, if as Christians we experience the discipline of God through his providences in our lives... If we experience the chastening and humbling of of God through his bringing persecution into our lives. In other words, if being a child of God is this hard. Think what it's going to be like for those who aren't. That's what he says. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, if this is God's love, what will his wrath be like? Is this in effect what Peter's saying? Now, that's not to diminish the love of God, which is far greater than the love you parents have for your children or even you husbands and wives have for each other. But it is a holy love. We experience both the the goodness, the kindness, and the severity of God. But what would it be like to be exposed to the wrath of God? What is the alternative to enduring suffering for the sake of Christ in this world? It's to endure the approval of the world. Endure is to enjoy the approval of the world. It's to have the, uh, the commendation of the world. But you see, when you have the approval of the world, you lose the approval of God. And the approval of the world is for a very short time. The approval or the wrath of our heavenly Father, the wrath of God, is forever. And that's what Peter's saying here. Look, you know, you you think it's something to suffer for Christ here? Well, think what it's like to suffer the wrath of God for eternity. And to, to make the point, he goes on and quotes from Proverbs in verse eighteen again. Just to say the same thing, if the, righteous, if the righteous person is scarcely saved, the point is not so much that we're just barely saved as it is that it's difficult. You know, if it's this difficult to be saved, both in what it costs, the blood of Christ, and our sanctification in God's work, purifying us, burning away the dross then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Same argument, just saying the same thing, just in a different way. Consider the alternative. You, if you, if you would grow, grow weary of suffering for Christ's sake, or even just suffering, and you say, "God, I've had it with you. You know, I should have it easier than this. This shouldn't happen to me because I'm a Christian." Consider the alternative, you'll realize we have it pretty good. Regardless of what this world or this life throws at us, so that's uh, you know the point that he's making here. consider the alternative: God begins with his own you know I, uh, one of the one of the delights in in the session meeting is to have a child of the church come before the session to um, to make a profession of faith to be admitted to the lord 's table as a communing member. Now, all of the elders will ask questions, but as some of you who've been through there know, uh, I'm often the one who's asking the most questions. And I've been accused of being harder on the children of our church than I am on adults who come to, to join. And there may be some truth in that. Uh, if so, it's probably for a couple of reasons. One, it's because you're coming to make your initial profession of faith. Uh, and need to demonstrate that you understand the gospel and who Christ is, you understand the Lord's Supper. But I guess there's also a little bit of personal pride involved. You're a child of this church. You grew up in this church. I know you've had good teaching. And so I expect more, perhaps, of a child of this church than I do someone who came from outside this church. Well, there's something of that dynamic at work. The father expects more of his children, Maybe more than we sometimes think we can give, but he begins with his own. And so we need to remember that. But consider the alternative uh, to be outside the love of God and exposed to the wrath of God. Last lesson, and just quickly, that Peter gives to us here is in the last verse, verse 19. And that is, in all of it, that you entrust yourself to God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, and I think every word here that Peter uses is carefully measured. Uh, first of all, he says, "Let those who suffer, according to the will of God, in other words, according to righteousness, but also acknowledging that this isn't outside God's control, this is not apart from God's will and purposes for your life." We recognize that. He says, "Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls." The word has the idea of committing a deposit to someone else. In fact, it was used in a technical, uh, commercial sense or financial sense of entrusting a deposit of money to another person. They didn't have banks like we do, so if you were leaving, going away, very often somebody would take their money, all the money they had, and would commit it to a faithful friend, somebody they could trust, to keep it while they're gone. So it wouldn't be stolen, so it wouldn't be lost. Uh, Jesus uses the same term. When he dies, he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit to you. Now, it's broader than just that technical financial sense, but it gives us an idea of what's involved there. That we are entrusting our souls, our well being, into the hands of our Heavenly Father, who, as Peter says here, is faithful. He can be trusted, He is trustworthy. And he's also the Creator. Peter reminds us that he's the one who rules. He is the one who reigns over this. It's not our oppressors. It's not those who would hate us. It's not those who torment you in ways vicious, and ways subtle, who rule. It's our our Heavenly Father who is a faithful creator while we continue to do good. And there he emphasizes emphasizes that point once again. We're not to suffer for evildoing. We're to suffer for evil. Being like Christ, or to suffer for living like Christ, or to suffer for reflecting the likeness of Christ here in this world all around us. And so Peter leaves off really the last main section of teaching uh, on this uh, that he has to present to us. I was uh, the reality of this, though was uh, struck home to me last week uh, on uh, Thursday, you know the National Day of Prayer. Uh, I read something on a blog about uh, Franklin Graham, who was, had been invited to speak at the Pentagon on an a, official National Day of Prayer event. And a couple of weeks before the event, he was uninvited. It had to do with complaints that were raised about things Graham had said concerning Islam. Uh, not the least of which was that Islam was evil in that it led people away from Christ and away from salvation. Because of that, he was uninvited. Curiously, in 2003, Franklin Graham uh, did speak at the Pentagon on the National Day of Prayer. Something changed from then till now, and it wasn't Graham's positions. You see, you can be a Christian as long as you acknowledge everybody else's is, is right, too. But when you say Christ is the way, Christ is the only way, and all other ways lead ultimately to hell, You have drawn a line in the sand that offends. People don't like that. And that's why Peter says here, do not be surprised when a fiery trial comes to you. How do we respond? Well, we respond with the love and the grace of Christ toward those who persecute us, and we respond, as he says, by entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator while we continue to do good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do have a faithful creator. We have a strong redeemer. And Lord Jesus, we know there's nothing in this world that we could suffer that you did not suffer equal or worse. And Lord, we thank you. We pray, Father, that we would not see ourselves somehow as exempt. Lord, we identify with a crucified Messiah. Give us grace to be willing to live crucified lives. But Father, we pray that you would spare us. We do pray for peace. We pray for freedom from persecution. But Father, if and when that comes, we pray for grace to respond like Christ and to respond as your people have done so well over the years. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.